Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. Sharing pictures of people, you know, of all different body types, you know, that's another example that, you know, of course I thought about how can I effectively convey this feedback to my editors, but also maybe how can I work this into something that I could potentially write about myself. So I always appreciate getting feedback like that. Representation matters in the story and the person writing it. Today we talked to a freelance journalist who has proved both are true. I'm Michael O'Connell, and this is It's All Journalism. Welcome to your weekly dose of good journalism. While I'm usually the person asking the questions, this week one of our producers, Amelia Brust, steps up to the microphone to talk to a freelance journalist and runner, Amelia Benton. One of our Amelia's greatest traits is that she's an enthusiastic runner, so they both have a lot to talk about. So enjoy this week's episode. So Amelia, thank you so much for being on It's All Journalism. We're so excited to have you on today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here and it's great to be talking to fellow Amelia. <laughs> I know I I'm going to be I'm going to be super upfront about this and say your name was the first thing that caught my <laughs> eye when I was scrolling through episodes of the Alley on the Run podcast, which I told you is how I first heard about you. And I saw your name and I was like, well, obviously I have to click on this like it's <laughs> And then I read like the short bio they had for you. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. There's a lot to this person that would be really interesting to know about. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm glad you found me. I hadn't heard of the podcast before and it sounded like it was definitely up my alley when you contacted me. So all the non-runners listening to this episode can relax. We will save the running questions towards the end because there's nothing less interesting than non-runners hearing runners (laughs) talking about running. Yeah, so no. (laughs) Yeah. So, but, you know, first and foremost, you are a a freelance writer, but you are a very prolific freelance writer and you are very transparent just scrolling through your Twitter today. You're very transparent about the sort of ins and outs of being a freelancer, of the day-to-day sort of struggles that it can come with and the sort of lessons and and things you have to to know to stand up for yourself in the industry and to and to represent yourself as best you can so i kind of wanted to start by just asking you a bit about maybe how you got your start in journalism and then how you decided to go freelance full-time so i knew i wanted to go into journalism from a young age i think from when I was 14 and a freshman in high school, I always loved reading magazines. And I remember reading one of my favorite teen magazines when I was in high school, Cosmo Girl magazine. I decided one day I would write to the editor-in-chief since she had in her editor's letter in every issue, she always like ended it saying, you know, email me about anything at all. So I thought like, this is a career that I might be interested in. So why not send her an email asking for some advice about how to pursue it. And she actually wrote me back. That was Atusa Rubenstein. She was the founding editor of Cosmo Girl. She wrote me back with a ton of advice, like a, like a page worth, which I printed out and put up on my wall. And it basically, you know, gave some advice, like write for your high school newspaper, if you have one, 
And if you're really serious about pursuing a career in magazines, consider attending college in New York City or near New York City, because that's where a lot of the big publishing companies are. And it would give you an edge to be able to interview in person for some of those big internship opportunities. So that's what I ended up doing when I was in high school. My dad took my twin sister and me one spring break to visit colleges in the New York City area. And I ultimately decided on Hofstra University in Long Island. And I loved my experience there. They had they have a really good journalism program. It's only like a 25 minute train ride from New York City. So I was able to go on a lot of interviews for some of those internships. And I did end up having a lot of cool experiences. I interned at Glamour Magazine as my first internship. And then later at Cosmo Girl, though sadly Atusa was long gone by then. And then I also interviewed at, or interned at Moore Magazine through the American Society of Magazine Editors internship program. And I did a couple of other internships after graduating before finally landing my first full-time job, which was as an editorial assistant at a medical research company for a couple of trade magazines. So then how did you, from there, make the transition to, to the Houston Chronicle, you know, into the, the newspaper slash like hard news world instead of magazines? I stayed in New York City for about two years after I graduated. You know, I realized that after, you know, living there all throughout my college years and doing all those internships and finally getting my, my start in the industry, I kind of, I felt like I had kind of lived out that experience and was kind of burned out on it. You know, New York is so expensive, especially when you're fresh out of college and have student loans to pay and you're pursuing a career in an industry that's not known to be super lucrative when you're first starting out. So I decided to move back to Houston because this is where I grew up. And I had a lot of connections in the healthcare field and a family friend set me up with an admin job so that I could move back with a job in place. And so I stayed at that job for about a year and then uh, the copy editor and staff writer position opened up at the Houston Chronicle. And I really loved that job. It wasn't hard news. I worked on a bunch of special sections that were produced on the advertising side, like the real estate section, the employment section, and then a bunch of special sections throughout the year. Like they have one called Salute to Nurses that honors working and student nurses in the Houston area. And then they have a bunch of like holiday sections throughout the year, like for Easter and Christmas, and then like a home buyer's guide and like several education guides. So a little of everything. And I really loved the team that I worked with there. I still have a good relationship with them and still do a lot of freelance work for them. But working on staff there, I was severely underpaid. And after three years, I just decided that I needed to to move on to something else to be able to make more money. And so from there, I moved on to, to a job at a hospital in the Texas Medical Center. This job actually was somewhere where I could use my editorial expertise. And I worked as an editor on like the informed consent documents that patients would complete before participating in clinical trials. And I actually ended up getting laid off from that job after a year. And that's kind of where I went freelance. I suddenly realized that I had all this time on my hands afterward. And I had a story idea that I wanted to pitch to Runner's World that I got the idea for about a month actually before I got laid off. And I had emailed my friend, Allie Feller, who you mentioned, that's where you first heard about me when I was on her podcast. And she had been working as a freelance writer for, I think, a couple of years at that point. And she seemed to be 
you know, pretty well established and like she knew all the ins and outs of doing it. And I really, at that point, even though I had done a little bit of freelance work myself, everything that I'd done, you know, had been through existing connections. So I had never had to submit a story pitch before and didn't really know how to go about that. So I asked Allie for some advice on how to do that and how to submit that first pitch to Runner's World. And when I first asked her for that advice, I was still at that last job. And even though she, you know, I could tell that she was really confident in me and the idea, I still wasn't really very confident in myself. And I kind of just sat on it and just filed it away thinking like, they probably won't be that interested in it. And then a month later, I lost my job and suddenly had all that time on my hands. And so I decided, you know, why not go ahead and send it? What's the worst that could happen? They say no. And so I ended up sending it and they ended up accepting it. And it got a really great response from their audience, which really surprised me. When my editor told me to like come back and keep pitching them, I was surprised to hear that because I kind of thought this would just be like a one-off thing while I looked for another job. And I didn't expect to continue to even freelance. Like in the meantime, I thought after that, I would focus my energy just on, you know, landing another full-time job. But after hearing that, I decided to, to circle back with Allie and ask for more advice about pursuing relationships and other opportunities with other health and fitness publications. And it kind of, you know, the rest is kind of history from there. I mean, it wasn't, it's not like my workload suddenly blew up after that, but from there I was able to spend the next year and a half or so pursuing these relationships and creating more opportunities to myself to get to where I am now. So when you wrote that first freelance story, like how did you navigate the like the process to actually like get it to an editor and then also to like negotiate your rate or did they just come to you with like a a standard like this is what we pay our our freelancers and you can take it or leave it sort of thing yeah one of the biggest reasons why I asked Allie for advice was because I didn't know any editors there and I had no idea who to send it to and so she recommended the best person that she thought would be who she thought would be the best person to send it to. And I emailed that editor and, you know, told her how I got her contact information and just gave her, you know, a brief summary of the pitch and what I had in mind for it. And then the editor came back with a rate and looking back, I mean, it was substantially lower than what I would typically get paid for a runner's world story now, but at the same time, it was also a lot more than I had earned on the other freelance stories that I'd written before that for my sole two clients that I had before that, the Houston Chronicle and Pop Sugar. And so I didn't really think to question it at that point. And I don't know if I really would have been in a position to ask for more at that point when that was my first big get like that for a national publication. But moving forward, like as I've gotten further into my career, I've kind of been better able to navigate that road of negotiating for a better rate. So as you've gone along, you know, how have you over time, like, more firmly established your rates or, I mean, you don't have to, if you don't want to, you don't have to go into what they actually are. But like, I'm really wondering, like, what are the considerations you take into like, how can I determine what this is justifiably going to cost me? Is it based on my time? Is it based on my resources? If I have to hire someone to assist me in order to produce this piece, but also, how have you also learned to maintain relationships with all the different, you know, editors and also sources that you may have to go to over and over again for stories? As far as rates, I wouldn't say that I have 
a specific rate that I've established for myself and said, like, I won't accept anything lower than this. Maybe I should at this point, but I, you know, having also worked on staff at a publication that works with freelancers, I also can, you know, empathize with the fact that these places have budgets to work with and I have some that still pay me less than I would like, but I don't think it's worth it to sever those relationships and say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to write for them if they really can't afford to pay me more. But at the same time, there are things that I take into consideration if a place is offering me what I would think is way too low an offer for what they're asking. For example, if someone is asking for like a 1000 word article with at least two interviewed sources and they're offering $200 or less, that's ludicrous to me. And, you know, I'll come back and say that, and I'll say that to them, I'll say like for the amount, for the amount of work that this would require, I could only do it if you would pay me, you know, X amount for something like that. I guess I would ask for at least $400. Like I said, it can also depend on the amount of work that would go into it and the subject matter and how much additional research and everything would go into it. There are also some pieces that are, you know, pretty easy to turn around. Sometimes pieces don't require interviews at all, or even if they do, once I talk to someone, I can usually crank out the story in an hour or two. And on those kind of stories, it's, you know, I wouldn't necessarily turn something down if it's less than normal, you know? Yeah, you know, every everything's kind of on a case-by-case basis, I would think. So then because you are not working at you're not working in an, a traditional office and you're not working for an a sort of enclosed organization that has like a clear managerial structure or has like a very clear like promotional path what to you is career advancement like what does growth or advancement look like for you i guess i would say that it kind of looks like you know, kind of carving out your own path and, and advocating for yourself, you know, like I've been lucky that a lot of the places that I've written for consistently over the last three years, some of them have actually been the ones like they've been the ones to take the initiative and say, you know, you've written for us for this long, you're consistently clean and, and punctual writer. So we're going to up your rate from this to this. And I always really appreciate that. But at the same time, I found that, that, I'm still working on this, but I need to be better about being proactive and advocating for myself there and not being afraid to ask for that myself at some places that that I already have good relationships with. And another example of career growth is that, especially in the last year or so, actually more at the beginning of this year, I've had a few new to me clients reach out to me, like just sending me a cold email saying that they've read my work somewhere else and would like to work with me. And that's you know, I don't take that for granted because it was not that long ago that I, you know, was just starting out and sending a bunch of cold pitch emails myself and often not hearing anything back. So at this point, how much of your work is centered in Houston or in the Houston area? Not much at all. I guess I would say just the work I do for the Houston Chronicle. I know there are a few other local outlets that are based here in Houston, but I've found that local outlets tend to have smaller budgets and often don't pay as well as as national ones. So really not much at all is based here in Houston. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that specifically because I used to work in the Houston area and 
I worked there between 20, late 2015 and early 2018. And it always kind of seemed to me odd that a city of Houston's size seemed like it was comparatively a smaller media market. Because I came there from, you know, I went to college in Philadelphia, which is a smaller city, but a huge local media market. And now I I live in the DC area and you went to college in the New York tri-state area. So I was just kind of curious to know, like, what do you think, what does the Houston media landscape kind of look like these days? If it's kind of changed a bit in the last few years, or if there's more avenues now for, for writers to to sort of cover news or to get published or to be connected to other writers in that city? Yeah, I guess I would say I don't think it's changed much in the last years. I think there, you know, I think there is a big media scene here in Houston with the Houston Chronicle and a few other smaller, you know, written publications. And then also there's a lot of local news stations here, but I don't think it's not really concentrated with freelancers. I'm might know maybe one or two other freelancers of two other freelancers who live here. I don't know any, any personally, but I would say that Houston is a great place to live as a freelancer because, you know, the cost of living is so low here compared to other places. When I moved back here from New York 10 years ago, I literally had no savings to my name and that quickly changed once I moved here. Oh my God. (laughs) A giant same is like floating in front of my face right now. I have to say that is like the cheapest major city I have ever lived in in my entire life. And I do very much miss the cost of living. But you know, I always kind of felt like I don't know any reporters in this city. Like I didn't see that many other reporters going to the things I was going to. And I didn't like know who to connect with in this in the city's industry so and i would think that as a freelancer those like networking is like super important like even more so than than if you are on staff somewhere i feel like i have connected with a lot of other freelancers like like through social media and just made connections that way over the last two years since i went freelance And, and i feel like i know of so many freelance writers all across the country at this point but i don't know if that's if it's you know, been more of a trend that more people went freelance around the same time that I did, or if there's always been this many people doing it freelance. I feel like before, I mean, before I went freelance, you know, like I said, I went freelance kind of back after losing my job, but it was never something I had considered doing before that, because I don't think I realized that it was a possibility to actually have a sustainable career this way. You know, when I worked in magazines, I knew of a few people who had left staff roles, like after they like got married and had a baby and just decided, you know, they were going to be at home with, with their new baby. And they produced a few like one-off stories here and there, but it wasn't like a full-time thing for them. So I never considered that it actually could be filling a full-time schedule with this work. Right. Another thing that you have that you've talked about is um, Houston is kind of a special city in the sense that it is incredibly diverse and the, the proportion of, of Latinos and Latinas in the Houston media market is probably uh, higher than many other metro areas. So you've written before that like, you know, you didn't feel as quite out of place or as much an other in Houston as you had in other media cities. 
But is that still the case? Do you feel like it's getting better with with representation in news in in the Houston area? Or do you feel like it's kind of it's the same or maybe that it's even gotten worse? Well, with regard to like physical and literal representation, I think, yes, it's still they're still doing really well in the Houston area. There's you know, if you turn on some of the local news stations, especially Channel 2 on KPRC, pretty much on any given segment or show or whatever, like if you're watching the morning news or the afternoon news or the evening news, you'll see a diverse range of reporters there. And when I worked on staff at the Houston Chronicle, it did seem like there was, you know, a, div- a diverse range of people in um, in all areas from editorial to design and production and advertising and everything. But at the same time, I think salary growth is still kind of stagnant for people and women of color. That was definitely my experience there. I mean, like I said, that was the reason why I had to leave my job at the Eastern Chronicles because I was severely underpaid there. And, you know, after doing some, you know, investigation and talking to some of my coworkers and peers, I found that, you know, it really was true that, that as a woman of color, I was earning a lot less than my white male counterparts. And this is still true for women of color across all industries. Like if you look you know, recently there was that, I think it was like international or national equality pay day. If you looked at Instagram posts for that and you see like where they have like the, the charts that compare how much women or people of color earn in comparison to every dollar that a white male earns, like you'll, you'll pretty much always see that Hispanic people or Latinos are at the very bottom of that chain. Yeah. And how do you feel like you've had to maybe, you know, prove yourself a little differently than your than your white peers or your white coworkers? Or how have you had to, I'm just kind of wondering, like, how do you think that you have been maybe made to jump through a few more hoops to to get to the same place in the industry? There's just one, like, example, again, from from your Twitter, you've talked about, you know, you've struggled more to get proper you know, mentions for your stories, you know, people share your stories just fine, but they don't always give you credit for them at the same rate they would white or male journalists. Yeah, that's a good example right there. That's another way that I feel like I have to prove myself. I've found, I've often seen my stories shared on Twitter or mentioned at length in podcasts and the person talking about them usually won't bother to mention who the author was, but I've noticed, you know, at the same time that if they're talking about an article or other content created by a white writer or a white creator that people are more familiar with. It's never a question if, the, if they'll mention them by name. And, you know, you know, I can't help but ask, like, I mean, obviously this is an example of unconscious bias, but I wonder like if there's even any, any line of thinking behind it, what is it? Is it because they think, Oh, like no one's going to know this writer. So it's not really important to mention them, but that really, that just contributes to the problem, you know? And I don't bring that up to harp on, you know, my low follower counts or anything like that. But to highlight that, you know, being mentioned by name like that could make or break being noticed by someone important in the industry and being offered a a certain opportunity. Yeah, no, I mean, like, you got to give people credit for their work. And like, also, you know, and the handy thing about handle is that when you share it, it's like a hyperlink to all of that person's other work. So, you know, no matter who they are, if you see that, handle and then you can very easily go to their profile and then you can see like oh they actually do all these other cool things too you know like it's just this is a a voice I, I hadn't heard before and now I can find out more of their stuff 
So I did also want to ask, you did a lot of stories last year about diversity and representation in the running community. And I think it was Runner's World, like, was doing these, like, big story packages about this. And, you know, there were organized events of, you know, people running in solidarity for different things. I also, you know, joined the uh, the 223 race this February in, in memory of Ahmaud Arbery. So I just first wanted to ask, who had the idea to do those stories? Yeah, that story was my original pitch. And that's actually not the first diversity focused story that I did. Well, I guess the stories that I had done earlier that year weren't like I didn't pitch them with that diversity angle in mind originally. But at the beginning of 2020, I would normally run the Houston Marathon every year. And in 2020, I unfortunately got injured a month out and was really bummed about that for a while in the weeks leading up to the race. And then the week of the race, an opportunity with Runner's World materialized where they wanted me to cover the people who were the final qualifiers for the Olympic marathon trials that were going to take place in Atlanta a month later. The Houston Marathon was actually the very last day that people could qualify for the trials. So a lot of sub-elite runners had targeted that race to have like one final attempt at it, especially if they had already tried it and missed it before. And so that was a really cool opportunity. I got to hang out in the media area and see, you know, see those final qualifiers come in. And some of them, one of them was actually a close friend of mine here in Houston. And so that was, you know, that was a cool opportunity. And it was really emotional to get to see that happen for her. And in writing that story, you know, I didn't realize that it would turn out this way, but I ended up getting a pretty diverse range of subjects of people who qualified for the Olympic trials. And I got to quote, you know, a variety of different people. And after that happened, one of the runners who I quoted who had qualified at Houston, it turned out that he was part of the the DACA program. So, you know, he was brought to the U.S. as an undocumented immigrant from Mexico as a child. And it turned out that because of that status, he was not allowed to run in the Olympic trials in Atlanta. So he actually reached out to me and his intentions of reaching out to me. I think he thought he needed to tell me, like, in case we needed to, like, make a retraction in the story. And that never crossed my mind at all. And like from by the time he contacted me, you know, it was, you know, he was trying to appeal that decision because, I mean, he had barely qualified under under the standard that he had no shot at actually making the U.S. Olympic team. It was basically his participation in the trials just would have been like, a, you know, just a celebration of the accomplishment and the opportunity to be there. So he was trying to appeal that decision and he had no success there. And I first pitched that story to my editor at Runner's World just to, you know, I pitched it as, you know, just saying, you know, here's what happened. And but also, you know, this is an opportunity to share someone's story who we otherwise might not hear about. And initially, my editor at Runner's World turned it down, saying that he didn't really think there was a story there. You know, looking back at that now, like after everything that's happened in the last year or so, I probably would have would have pushed back on that myself and, you know, emphasized why I think it's important to share stories like these. But at that point, this was like this was January 2020 and I still hadn't written much for Runner's World at that point. So I kind of just moved on from there. I was disappointed, but I was like, okay, I just accepted it. And a couple of weeks later, my editor came back, I guess he'd had a change of heart and decided that he did want me to do the story. So I was, you know, really happy to hear that. And I worked on that for a couple of weeks. And by the time that it was finally published, it was, you know, it was two days before the Olympic trials in Atlanta. So at that point, you know, 
what was done was done and nothing was going to change for him at that point. It really did just serve as an opportunity to share this runner's story. And after it was published, you know, it did get a lot of positive feedback, but at the same time, runners, a lot of runners world commenters on their social media can really be ruthless. And it got plenty of racist comments on there and people saying, you know, people insisting like he's, he shouldn't even be here, much less be participating and just every, just like a lot of super negative comments. And that was disappointing to see. But in the end, um, I was happy that I got to share that story. Yeah. And it's also like, hey, dummies, these comments are exactly why we're doing all of these stories now. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> like, y'all have a problem with diversity and acceptance and inclusion. And we're finally pointing it out. So I'm wondering what were maybe some things in in reporting these different stories that you heard from from people that surprised you or if there were things that they mentioned about you know running that you could identify with in some way well i feel really lucky that i've never experienced overt racism as a runner myself you know i've been lucky in that in my you know in the majority of the time that i've been running i've lived in two of the most diverse cities in the country new york city in Houston. And so both of these, even it even extends to the running community that it's a really diverse scene and I've never felt like I don't belong, but I've also, you know, I have had moments where I've like, occasionally I'll go for a long run in the predominantly white neighborhood that I grew up in here in Houston. And sometimes I'll get looks from people like out in their front yards. Like, I don't know if they're trying to suggest that I don't belong there, you know, so I can relate in that way. Yeah. Um, do you tend to run for that reason? Like, do you stick to more public places usually, or you don't think about it? You'll run on a res- on a private street or a public street or whatever. Yeah, you know that does factor into my line of thinking of where I'm going to run. I like to stick to places that I know are safer and more populated with people. I am lucky that I live across the street from Herman Park by the Houston Medical Center, and so I mostly run there or around the loop around Rice University or on the Braze Bayou Trail. I usually opt for those routes mainly because I like to run routes where I'll have to stop as little as possible and I can avoid like traffic lights and all that. So that's just easiest for me. But also definitely I also keep in mind that I want to run in places where I won't be harassed or I won't be catcalled or anything like that. The fact that that has to factor into it is just... It's just like when you're running, you have to take into account every little thing. You're always like trying to make sure that your clothing is just right so that it doesn't annoy you, that your headphones are not falling out, that, you know, your playlist is set and your battery is long enough that it's going to last and not cut out. So it's like just that one, that extra stress to add on to it is just not helpful. So you also, you are a runner and you write about running and you've written a lot of stories about like, I tried this thing or articles that were like, this was what happened to me. And, you know, when you were on the Alley on the Run podcast, the other thing I I was excited to hear about was you had, she was specifically promoting an article that you had written about, basically, I think you had overtrained. And so you decided to just take a chill pill for your next bout of marathon training and you ended up performing great. Again, speaking (laughs) selfishly, do went through an overtraining bout at the beginning of this year and I'm now in the process of clawing my way back in the midst of marathon training, basically. So kind of wondering, what do you think about when you're writing a story that 
put yourself in it in some way? How do you make sure that it doesn't just come off like an essay and it comes off as something that is outwardly sort of like helpful or practical to other people? That was the first story that I referenced, that first story pitch that I sent to Runner's World when, you know, after I had lost that first job. And that was pitched with the idea of it being a personal essay. And, you know, when I first pitched that and and especially when I first like shared it on social media and shared it with people, I did kind of think like, do people really care about my experiences? Like, are people just going to think this is just like super like self-centered of me or whatever to be writing something like this? And that's why it was really eye-opening to me that that it got such a huge response from readers because people do want to hear about relatable experiences like that, even if it's not something, you know, even if it's something kind of, I mean, I don't want to say negative because it's something that obviously like I learned from and being able to share it help people. But yeah, I think I do think like essays like that can be helpful for people. And that was, you know, that one was something that was just, you know, the whole thing was just my experience. But I've written some stories after that. Like more recently, I wrote another story for Runner's World about how I guess kind of related to that. I've come to realize that I am one of those runners who, you know, I I guess I would consider myself to be more of an advanced or somewhat competitive runner because of the fact that I have, you know, high goals, like qualifying for the Boston Marathon eventually. But I'm one of those people who performs better on lower mileage. Most people who are chasing goals that are similar to mine will will train sometimes, you know, like we'll peak at like 60 miles or more in a marathon training cycle. And I've found that that's, that's way too much for me. And I've run my best times and my PRs when I've scaled back and not peaked up more than 50 miles. So I wrote a story about that for Runner's World about the title of it was, you know, for some runners, less mileage is more. And for that one, I did interview, you know, experts and repeatable sources, including a coach who, who has run about the same volume as me. And she's broken three hours in the marathon three times. And I interviewed another coach, Nell Rojas, who was actually a top 10 finisher at the Olympic marathon trials. And she is known to be a lower volume runner as well. And so the point of that was just to emphasize that running really is an individualized sport and, you know, what works for one person might not necessarily work for everyone. Yeah. But we do have to get back to journalism because this is first and foremost a journalism podcast. (laughs) So I want to know, since you've written those stories about representation and, you know, marginalized groups in the running community, have you heard back from any of those any of those individuals or groups that you interviewed? And are you planning any sort of like follow up to see like you know, how life has been for them since their stories were shared and and their experiences were shared that, you know, made people stop and think, oh, I didn't realize this was going on this whole time. Yeah, with that big story that I wrote for Runner's World last year, where I interviewed 10 runners of color about their experiences with racism as it relates to to running and their perceptions of diversity and inclusion within the sport. A lot of them I had heard of, but I didn't have like formed relationships with them before that. And it's been nice that, you know, those relationships did come out of that experience after, after interviewing them. And there have been a few of them that I have kept in touch with. And some of them, you know, writing that article also led to bigger opportunities for them. Carolyn Sue, who runs the Diverse We Run Instagram account, she has had a lot of bigger 
media opportunities come out of that. She was actually on the cover of an issue of Runner's World last fall after that, which which is really awesome. And I'm so happy for her. And Danae Dormy, who's an indigenous runner living in, in New Mexico, she started her own podcast, which I believe is sponsored by Tracksmith. It's called Grounded, if anyone wants to check it out, where she's interviewing a, a diverse range of runners within the community. And she's doing a really great job with it. I haven't kept in touch with them, you know, just for professional reasons, but more because of the friendships that have formed from that. And I hope I hope that I'm able to meet a lot of them in person one day soon after, you know, post-COVID. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So uh, do you have at this point any kind of like dream story or dream project that you would like to do, whether or not it's in the immediate future or just the right moment in the right publication would need to come along for it? Well, I definitely want to keep being able to tell more of these stories about, you know, about the diverse range of, of not just runners, you know, diverse people doing, you know, doing really cool things all across the country. It might seem like I've written a lot of stories like kind of centered on this topic in the last year, but the truth is it's still, you know, it still pales in comparison to all the stories that we hear about more prominent white figures doing kind of the same thing. And, you know, I guess basically what I'm trying to say is that, you know, we're nowhere near telling enough or telling too many of these stories. And I will fight to be able to tell as many of them as I can. And I've also had, I've had some people reach out to me, sending me feedback, not necessarily about my stories, but about some of the publications that I write for about topics they would like to see covered. Like I've had, uh, I recently had She's not a runner, but she works um, like in, I guess, in the fitness space who promote awareness about the need for more fitness resources and the need for more representation among athletes with disabilities. And, you know, I think she was reaching out to me first, like trying to see if I could convey that feedback to some of the publications that I write for. But, but it made me think more, you know, not only how can I do that, but also how can I like work this, you know, frame this into a pitch to potentially be able to cover this myself. And similarly, another, uh, another runner reached out to me saying that she's noticed on Runner's World's social media that they haven't been doing a very good job of, of sharing pictures of people, you know, of all different body types. And so that's, you know, that's another example that, you know, I, of course I thought about how can I, um, effectively convey this feedback to my editors, but also maybe how can I work this into something that I could potentially write about myself. So I always appreciate getting feedback like that. Yeah, you're kind of killing two birds with one stone that way, honestly. Yeah. So uh, the last thing I want to ask is, um, are your favorite tools as a writer, as a reporter, what do you think makes a huge difference in your ability to, you know, to get your work done quickly and, you know, in the best quality that, that you think it can be? Like, what tools do you use both free and that you, you think it is worth the investment in? Well, the best free tool is having a quiet space at home to work, to work at by myself every day. I say all the time, I don't know how I was ever able to do this kind of work and do interviews like in a cubicle at the Houston Chronicle with people constantly like walking by and talking over me when I was trying to do that. So I need complete peace and quiet to be able to do that productively. I don't know how people are able to, you know, like do this kind of work, like in coffee shops or in co-working spaces. And then other tools, 
in 2020 was when I first decided to start investing in professional transcription for my interviews, which has been huge because sometimes transcribing an interview, especially if it's longer than, than 30 minutes or an hour, it can take up a lot of your time. And that's an expense that I can, you know, write off when I do my taxes. So that is 100% worth it. Exactly. <laughs> Keep <laughs> your receipts, people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great. Was there anything that we didn't bring up? The sort of representative identifiers conversation? I don't know if you if you would still like to, to talk about that, but I kind of went through all of the, the questions I had prepared. So I'm happy to hear if there's anything else that, that you think would be good for us to mention. Oh, I think you had asked something about knowing when to say no. Yes. So I, <laughs> so I wanted to emphasize that, you know, in the beginning, when I first started freelancing and I was, you know, pitching up a storm and pitching anything and everything that I could to editors, I was pitching a lot of stuff that I wasn't very excited about just because I was trying to generate some income. And also I wasn't getting that much work offered to me directly at that point, but the work that I did, unless it was something that, you know, I just had a gut feeling that I did not feel good writing about this or having this, my name attached to this, which doesn't happen often. I would usually, you know, take anything and everything. And I think that's okay. When you're first starting out, you need to, you know, when you need to establish yourself, even if it sometimes means, you know, accepting lower rates than you hope to eventually earn. Like, I think that's, it's unfortunate, but it's part of, you know, it's part of the game. You, I, some of the best advice that, that Ali Feller gave me in the beginning is that, it's definitely possible to make a sustainable career out of, out of freelance writing, but you're going to have to really hustle in the beginning while you're trying to build those relationships. But now that I've gotten to be more established and now that I know I can um, typically expect to get a certain amount of work each month, it's gotten easier to say no to stuff that I'm, that I'm not that excited about. One example is I've written, a, you know, when I was trying to established myself I wrote a lot of weight loss stories and I'm really not enthused about that at all and so now it's like if I never have to write about the keto diet ever again it'll be too soon if I never have to read about the keto diet again <laughs> that's enough for me yeah okay great great Amelia, thank you so much for talking with me today. This has been an absolute joy, and I'm even more pumped to go for my um, afternoon run <laughs> when we're done this today. <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. This was fun. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.